So this week we'll continue our study and um, in prayer as we look at this topic, this, the doctrine of prayer. And this week we'll walk through how to overcome the hurdles that keep us from praying. So um, how, to, how to overcome the obstacles um, that keep us from being consistent in prayer. So last week we talked about those obstacles to praying, um, whether it's um, bitterness, whether it's uh, self-centeredness, whether it's um, feeling too ashamed to pray, um, whatever keeps us from praying and praying consistently. We talked about and thought through those things last week. So this week we want to consider how to overcome these hurdles that keep us from praying. <clears throat> uh, so growing up, my mom had uh, or has four sisters. And one of these sisters specifically stuck out to me uh, because she was just uh, different. She carried herself differently. She talked differently. Um, she expressed herself differently. It was just something about this one aunt that was different. And back then, um, growing up in South St. Pete, my parents used to have these prayer meetings at the house. And that aunt would be there. And when she prayed, it just seemed like the heavens opened up. Um, when she prayed, I'd, as a little boy, I used to hear her. I could always tell. We'd, we'd be in the back room playing, and they'd be praying in the front room. I could always tell when she was praying. It was just something very different. I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't pray like that. I don't know anybody else who prays like that. But when she prays, the Lord must definitely be hearing her prayers because she was just so uh, eloquent, and she was, just seemed to have this unique power in, in her praying. It was very unique and still you know, has this impression upon me now. I used to think to myself, you know, <laughs> my prayers sort of uh, take the slow route, but her prayers are on the fast lane and they get straight to heaven and the Lord hears them and he answers automatically because that's Auntie Nee. And when she prays, the Lord hears. Um, William Carey actually had a, um, you guys are familiar with William Carey, he had a sister who was actually paralyzed for most of her life. Um, and this sister would pray for her brother, William, while he was in India doing his various ministry work. And it's, he would write these letters and send them back home. And this sister would pray for him. And it said that for 52 years, every day, she prayed faithfully for her brother, William. Um, she was someone who uh, had a unique physical ailment. Um, and so I think maybe she had the opportunity and the privilege to recognize in this life a deep dependence upon the Lord in a unique way. And you can just imagine this sister quiet. No one really knows of her, knows who she is, but she's back home praying for her brother, William Carey, um, which could have very well been the Lord's means, primary means through which he flourished in ministry. Um, and you think about, I think about my Auntie Neat and this William, uh, William Carey's sister, Polly, and you think about them and like, man, they were such uh, uh, wonderful people who prayed and seemed to have this unique access to God. And um, we can react as that little boy, the eight-year-old me, and say, and when they pray, it's re really powerful. When I pray, you know, they may get up there, they may not, but it, it can discourage us in our prayer when we hear about such powerful examples in prayer. Um, but I want to encourage us, and I hope to do that through this class, to um, remind us of our righteousness, which is Christ, through whom we have access to the Father, 
and to encourage us as we think about prayer, um, praying with the remembrance that um, no one individual has unique access to God, but we all have been given access to God. And so my auntie Neat got her prayers heard, you know, as a little boy when I prayed. Uh, well, I wasn't saved back then, but if I were saved, <laughs> my prayers would have been uh, heard. Um, but nevertheless, when we hear these stories, we can be tempted to let them negatively affect how we view prayer. Again, like a little boy, that eight-year-old me, we might start thinking that those who um, have seem to have this unique gift are more effective in prayer than we are. But on the other end, we should, and I would say we must, um, take away a positive and encouraging perspective about prayer when we hear stories about William Carey's praying sister, Polly, or even Anne. We realize that we're all in different places on the spectrum of progressive sanctification. We all mature at different paces according to God's infinite wisdom and unquestionable goodness. But these stories do challenge us because they cause us to consider where we are and where we want to be. We want to pray with a greater knowledge of God, uh, with our minds informed by scripture and our affections stirred by the word and by the spirit um, with a greater degree of faithfulness. We want to desire to pray more and we actually want to pray more. That's a good place to be, right? There are um, so many examples throughout church history of uh, how we should pray. Um, Puritans we can draw from, saints of old we can draw from, um, family members, friends, you know, pastors we can draw from. Uh, but where is the best place to learn how to pray? What's the best place to go to learn how to pray? The Word, the, word, the Scriptures. So we'll do that. We'll look at the scriptures this morning, and today we'll walk through Paul's prayer in Philippians 1, 9 to 11 at the top of your handout. So hopefully uh, this can help us to overcome our own excuses for prayerlessness as we look at Paul's prayer. Uh, it's a short and simple prayer, but we'll break it up into three sections. So first, we'll talk about Paul's prayer for what is excellent. He prays for what is excellent. Then Paul's prayer is tied to a long view. So it looks toward heaven. And that's a common theme in Pauline prayers. It's sort of this, this in, uh, in time. Um, when I say in time, I mean the end of the Christian, which is heaven, holiness, and happiness, really, um, in Christ. And then last, Paul's prayer is not idolatrous, but it praises God. It's not self-glorifying or self-seeking, it's God-glorifying, and we should pray in the same way. So first, uh, let me have someone read Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Thank you, Roger. <clears throat> so our first point here, Paul prays for what is excellent. So Paul's prayer here is, is clear. It's not ambiguous. He wants these believers in Philippi to grow in their love more and more. But uh, simple love um, isn't the end of his prayer. 
the end goal of his prayer isn't simply that they would just be more loving people, not even that they would have love with knowledge and discernment, although he prays that, but a love with knowledge and discernment so that they would be able to approve what is excellent. In other words, that they would be able to discern what is best. So Paul connects love with discernment with the ability to be able to approve what is best, what is excellent. And he seems to assume that uh, this discernment and this ability to examine and approve what is best doesn't happen without both love and knowledge. Love and knowledge. You notice that Paul's prayer also assumes that God doesn't just zap into our minds the ability to discern what is excellent. We wish that would happen sometimes. We're in specific situations and we just want God to just give us, just give me the answer. <laughs> what do I choose here? What's, what's best? You know, um, whether it's work or recreation or with our children, we just want to know what's best. But Paul actually doesn't pray in that way and he doesn't assume that. Um, he prays that they may experientially test and as a result, approve what is excellent, that they would test and then approve what is excellent. And for that to happen, the Christian's love has to abound more and more. Now, when uh, most Christians hear this, they say, amen. We hear love and we say, yes, we need to love. We hear abound in love more and more, and we say, amen. That's what the church ought to be doing. That's what we're missing, love. Some wear shirts that say, love wins. We write songs and we sing songs that call for the reckless abandonment of everything for the sake of love. There are flags and banners scattered throughout Orlando that celebrate love. That seems to be this place of mutual agreement for people. Um, we just need to love each other more. And if we really love each other, we wouldn't have so many issues and disagreements, right? You see this over and over. But when Paul prays for love, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just pray for a love that's abounding more and more. It's this next part that he adds to the prayer that I think makes a lot of secular people and evangelicals alike at times maybe more uncomfortable. Paul's prayer for an increasing and abounding love is actually constrained by something. So in other words, he qualifies it. This abounding love, this increasing love, this love that should always be growing um, is defined by something specific. It's informed by something. Paul said it's constrained by what? Knowledge and discernment. Discernment here means a moral discernment that is not only by the senses, but by the intellect. So, the love that the Spirit uh, move, uh, moves Paul to pray for these Christians is not actually the reckless abandonment of everything. It may be the abandonment of some things, and even the abandonment of many things, but not everything. Matter of fact, um, he says you actually can't have this love that he's praying for unless you have something else. You can't have this love unless attached to this love is knowledge and discernment. Now, when you, a lot of people hear uh, love 
with the attachment of knowledge and discernment, it makes them uncomfortable. Like this, that restrains love, that restricts love. Aren't we just supposed to love freely and love joyfully and love happily and do whatever people feel is, is, is best for them? Paul prays and thinks and assumes very, very different things. Without knowledge or discernment or insight, love becomes actually sentimentality and feel-good pluralism that the world consistently confuses with love. Because they don't intimately know God, God who is love, 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love love. And then 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So it's not just uh, any loose category of love, um, but the love that Paul prays for is constrained by knowledge and discernment. When Paul refers to Christian love and knowledge, he means a mature grasp of the meaning of the gospel that is the fruit of sound instruction. So it's again informed by actually the gospel. The gospel informs how we understand love. The gospel informs how we understand how we are to express love. Uh, the gospel informs what is actually love personified. <laughs> the origin, the root, our triune God who is love and the person of Christ who is love. Now, um, on, on the other hand, some of us want to make knowledge one road that you can travel on and love another road that you can travel on. You hike down the road of love and see what happens. You're going to end up a tree-hugging idol worshiper. Right? So we take it to this extreme. <laughs> other people, on the other hand, say, well, you travel down the road of knowledge and doctrine. Um, and you'll just be cold. People don't really care, you know, what you have to say until they know that you care. And you have to have love. You can't just have knowledge, knowledge, knowledge and a head full of, you know, theology. And so we want to polarize what the Bible actually tethers together. Paul prays for love in knowledge and discernment. He doesn't separate them. And the abuses of either does not make the value of both irrevocably necessary. Doctrine ensures the purity and value of love. And this love, Paul says, must abound more and more and more. Now, what's, um, I think, excellent about here, I think this is what Paul's bringing out when he says, approving what is excellent, what is good. What is this, this excellent that Paul points to? Um, he's praying that we would have love and knowledge to be able to approve what's excellent. And some translations, um, this phrase, what is excellent in verse 10, has been expressed as what is best, um, like I've mentioned. D.A. Carson said, in explaining this, what is excellent, Paul's thought is that there are countless decisions in life where it is not a question of making a straightforward decision of right and wrong. It's not always that easy, that, that clear. What you need is the extraordinary discernment that helps you to perceive how things differ and then make the best possible choice. This is what Paul means by choosing what is excellent, what is best. So Paul is praying 
that as they live their lives out as Christians, they would be able to discern what is best. Out of many good things, what is best, what is most excellent. And I think this is directly connected to the overall theme of Paul's prayers throughout the New Testament. He consistently has in mind the end of the Christian life, heaven and holiness. So as you navigate your life, Paul prays that you will be able to choose what is most excellent to the end of your glorification. So which one of these choices uh, is, for me, is best and most profitable for my progress in the faith? Every day we face many choices, many options. Which one of these options before me, which which one of these choices is most profitable for my progress in the faith? So we're thinking um, not with an earthly end, but a heavenly good. Um, I'm moving somewhere. I'm going somewhere. I'm going from where I am to somewhere else, ultimately heaven. And I'm on this road of progressive sanctification. So as I consider this thing, this set of decisions, that thing, that thing, which one of these is going to be most profitable for my growth in the faith, for my sanctification? And those are questions that we have to ask ourselves as we do live life under the sun. <clears throat> it is interesting that just a couple verses back, Paul says that, this is um, uh, in Philippians 1, 6, what the verse is, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But Paul's confidence that the Lord will work in us this growth that he promises doesn't go away um, and it doesn't extinguish our need for personal, a personal resolve to grow in the faith, right? So we don't say, well, the Lord said he'll bring us to the end. He'll complete the work. So we just go and pop some popcorn, sit on the couch and watch TV all day. Um, no Christian progresses in the faith in that way. Um, we will be brought to the end in Christ. Our salvation is guarded for us in heaven, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And at the same time, we are to be abounding in love and trying to discern what is best, what is most excellent. There's a striving there. Paul's confidence that the Lord will work this in and through us does not extinguish his resolve. Paul doesn't pray a let go and let God theology. You heard of that theology before? Let go, let God. It's false. This is how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that the Lord promises to bring us to the end and striving to uh, perceive, to discern what is most excellent. God works in us as we pray for each other to have love with discernment to choose what is excellent, what is most profitable for our soul's sanctification. So when we think about this, and trying to discern what is most excellent. I mean, why do you think that is important for the Christian or just different from how the Christian lives from those in the world? Um, How does the Christian, knowing that they're going to an end, which is heaven and holiness, why is that important that we think through these individual decisions to approve what is excellent, to discern what is best? What What are you guys' thoughts on that? Does it seem... We tend, we tend to pray for things that are not eternal. Yeah, yeah. The here and now, which is all going to burn up one day anyway. Right. Yep. It's 
So we have a, we're, um, I always get them confused, nearsighted, shortsighted, where you can see only here. Close, is that nearsighted or shortsighted? Nearsighted or farsighted? Is it farsighted, is that the word? I get your point. Anybody else? <laughs> right, so we, we have a short-term view, right? So we should be looking beyond uh, just next week. Uh, we, we should be looking beyond just what's in front of us, the earthly things, but to the um, eternal things. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's not always easy to, to to discern that, which is why Paul prays that we would have. What about me? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So love with knowledge to discern what is best, and looking away from self, right, to discern what is most beneficial for our sanctification. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? How is it different from um, how people in the world make decisions? How is the Christian perspective distinct? The Christian lives according to God's revelation. Amen. Yeah. People in the world go by different feelings, emotions, or what they were taught by certain yeah. people. Yeah. And different other relations out in the world. Yeah. Amen. So the Christian has. Uh, the very words of God to inform how they live and how they think. It's a huge difference. The world doesn't value this. This is old and antiquated and not relevant. You know, why would I spend time reading my Bible before <laughs> I go to work or make a decision? Um, but this is life for the Christian. Yeah. Any other thoughts? <clears throat> okay. So continuing here. <clears throat> Pastor Ron actually preached um, uh, on Philippians 3, Philippians 3.12, where Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ made me his own. As Paul was praying uh, this for the Philippians, he was participating himself in the process of progressive sanctification. We, we think about Paul at times and you know, we look back and say, well, he was... His whole life, he, he was glorified. Like he saw Paul, he was glorified and lived his life as a glorified saint the rest of his time on earth. No, Paul was actually in a process of progressive sanctification too, as we all are. Now we're, we're thinking about Paul and his prayer to the Philippians and this love that would uh, be acquainted, tethered to knowledge and discernment or insight to be able to approve or choose what is best, what is most excellent. Again, Philippians 1, 9 to 10. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Um, I actually think the, um, the ambiguity of this passage is helpful for us. Uh, what I mean is Paul doesn't call out a specific vocation and say, in, uh, as you work at Hobby Lobby as a cashier, I pray that you would be able to approve what is excellent. He actually leaves it open-ended, which I think is for our benefit, or else we probably take it and say, well, I'm not doing this, therefore uh, I can't, it's not beneficial and I shouldn't be thinking like that, or I'm not doing this thing, or I'm not in ministry, or I don't work at that place or this place. But Paul leaves it open-ended. Whatever you do, what are you given to? Where do you work? Where is your time occupied most of the week, the month, the year? Whatever you're doing, Pray 
for wisdom and discernment, that your love would abound with knowledge to approve what is most excellent. Um, whatever it is. <clears throat> so I think that that open-endedness is actually to our benefit. Um, it gives us the ability to consider whether we're in school, at work, at home, in the backyard with the kids, you know, at Walmart, you know, in the aisle, looking at the Hershey's bar. Should we pick it up? Should we not? Um, <laughs> I got a hand over here. She understands. Um, we ought to be praying and thinking through these things consistently is, is, is the point. <clears throat> so, again, think about your own life. What do you do? Where do you work? What arena of life do you occupy? Um, with love and gospel-centric discernment, be choosing what is excellent unto the end of your glorification. You are, you're going to God. As you pursue whatever you're doing, have heaven in mind. Okay? <clears throat> right, any thoughts on that before we go to the next point? Okay. The next point, uh, Paul's prayer is tied to the long view. It's tied to the long view. <clears throat> Paul's prayer is tied to the final destination of the Christian. Paul prays that believers will test and approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now we'll come back to that phrase, the day of Christ, in a bit. But moving over that, in this context, filled with the fruit of righteousness parallels pure and blameless. Paul seems to be getting in, um, in, into the idea of ethical qualities. He's, he's getting at ethical qualities. When we're filled with the fruit of righteousness, our conduct, our actions, words, thoughts, are characterized by what God himself judges to be right. What God judges to be right. And this fruit of righteousness comes how? Through Christ. So Paul recognizes that we should strive for fruitfulness, progressively looking more and more like Christ as we read and meditate on the word of God, right, Psalm 1, um, while living in a way that's worthy of the gospel, Ephesians 4.2. But as this happens, we understand that spiritual growth and fruitfulness is possible because of Christ. John 15.5. Let me have someone read John 15.5 for us. Nice and loud so everyone can hear. <clears throat> I'll turn there myself. John 15.5. Whoever gets there, you can just read it for us. I am the vine, you are uh, the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he is Amen. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, we're thinking about how spiritual growth and fruitfulness is possible because of Christ. So Paul doesn't tell the Christian simply to try harder here. He doesn't tell them simply to do better. He has a different understanding of how Christians grow. Right? So <clears throat> my kids, uh, when we walk around the neighborhood... Uh, my daughter specifically likes to pick up sticks and rocks. She rips leaves from people's bushes. I can't do that. <laughs> and she likes to bring them home and she stores them up in the garage like a little squirrel. <laughs> and so you walk in the garage and before you go into the door, there's a pile. 
and it's psoriasis sticks, right? Or sticks, rocks, leaves, dead stuff, lizards. Um, and I, I don't know if she picks up lizards, but um, she likes to, to rip these, you know, the heads of these roses and these plants from them, and then she likes to bring them home. And it's funny because over time, you know, the first couple of days, you know, the, the rose or whatever the plant is, the flower, it's still pink, and she's carrying it around the house. Daddy, look. Yeah, you got your flower. Daddy, look. She takes it to the back of the garage. She picks it up again. And after two days, three days, <laughs> four days, she's like, why doesn't this look like the little pink flower I picked up? Well, it's dying. <laughs> it can't survive. Um, and so she disregards it. And I have to say, Peanut, pick up all these flowers and put them in the trash. You have all these flowers all around the house in the garage. And so I, I bring up that story to um, emphasize, I think, what John 15, 5 is saying. Sometimes we expect to bear fruit, and it's like, you know, my daughter ripping the flower from the, the bush, bringing it home, putting it on the ground, and it would be like saying to that flower, bloom. Bloom. Why aren't you blooming? Why are you turning brown? Why, why don't you seem more healthy? The Christian cannot bear fruit unless they are attached to Christ, unless they have union with Christ. Uh, we must be, as it says in John 15, 5, um, he it is that bears much fruit. Um, or I'll, I'll read it again. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever, it is, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Vine branch relationship. When we think that uh, progressing in the faith, bounding in love, approving what is excellent, is something that we just do by willpower, we rip the flower from the bush, throwing it on the ground, and said, bloom, grow. It will not happen. Um, the Christian life is uh, so unique and distinct in how God has designed his world, uh, his universe, and the Christian life to where there has to be attachment to Christ in order for there to be fruit bearing. Um, anything else just ends up being uh, will worship or willing by our own strength and of no value in the end. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, the vine, you cannot bear fruit. When we assume that Christian sanctification is just doing better or trying harder, and we assume that we can bear spiritual fruit without the power of the Spirit, again, we're ripping the budding rose from the rose bush and saying, bloom. The Bible is clear that the Christian life, or the life of a Christian, is the product of grace. Grace comes, as Paul says in his prayer, in Philippians 1, uh, 10, uh, it comes through Christ, right? It comes as we're attached to the vine. Now, let's jump back to this phrase, um, the day of Christ, at the end of verse 10. Um, Paul is looking forward to the end, and that transforms how he prays, um, or what, what he prays for in the now. Uh, Paul's um, straightforward looking to that day here, uh, when he says, when he gives us encouragement and connects it to the day of Christ, uh, him looking to that day is not a threat. When he says the day of Christ, um, his aim is not to scare them into righteous living. Uh, so he's not saying, well, you better start 
producing fruit and pursuing holiness and all of these things I've been saying to you, you better start doing um, because when Christ comes back, if you're not doing it, you're going to have to give an account. You're going to have to face judgment. He doesn't use that type of encouragement here. He doesn't say you better have a good excuse for why you're slacking when Christ comes back. And you see in the day of Christ, that's not how he's using it. Um, he, just, he doesn't use that approach here. But how does Paul encourage and pray for these believers? Um, what's more stirring and compelling than threatening judgment? Carson says, Paul is telling them that they must live with a view to the day of Christ. That is, they must live in such a way that they show they remember they are moving toward that day and are utterly constrained by it. On that day in the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3.13. The fruit of our lives will be entirely righteous and we're living unto that end. So it's the same thing, this heavenward looking. With eyes set to heaven, how now should we live? Second Peter 3, 11 to 13. I'll just read it for us. And you can turn there and read with me if you want. Second Peter 3, 11 to 13 says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, everything around us, everything we see, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter connects the dissolving, Roger's point, of all things. This is, this is going away. It's, it's perishing. He connects that to living godly and living holy. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of the Lord. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which, in which righteousness dwells. Um, another passage that's good for us to consider and meditate on, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. I'll read that for us. If then you have been united with, been raised with Christ, seek the things um, that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things of the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So these verses remind us, hopefully, remind me, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And so let our minds be filled with these verses as we consider how to pray for one another. Let our minds be filled with verses that focus our thoughts, affections, thinking on the end so that when we pray for one another, we're praying the same things for them. This end, inward, heavenward praying, this heavenward goal. <clears throat> so we can uh, memorize these passages maybe, or even uh, it's okay to do this Open your Bible to a prayer that you've noted and underlined and pray the, that prayer line by line for whoever you're praying for. It's, it's okay to do that. Um, it's okay to, to pray in this way for one another as we get the word in us and as we pray for each other. Um, it doesn't have to be very complicated. Write down some prayers that you can remember um, to go back. When you sit down and pray, open your Bible and pray 
the prayers of scripture. Um, they are sure um, to be answered as the Lord promises to do them. <clears throat> okay, and any thoughts on that before we go to our, our last point? Last point, Paul's prayer is not idolatrous, but it praises God. It's not idol worship, it's God word worship. <clears throat> At times when we pursue holiness and moral excellence, we can be tempted to do it in an idolatrous way. In other words, we strive for holiness in the wrong way and with the wrong motives. When we do it for recognition and self-praise instead of recognizing that it's by the Spirit for the glory of God, we're doing it with the wrong motives. And believe it or not, this type of pursuit, this self-centered pursuit, it bleeds into so many different areas of our lives. You might might actually see this type of pursuit in um, those who have a professionistic mentality. I'm one of those people. I'm very structured. I can be very perfectionistic. Um, it's a temptation and something that uh, the Lord is further sanctifying me in, but I have that type of personality. <clears throat> Some people can't live with themselves unless they're the best at whatever they're doing, unless they're the smartest person in the room or the most athletic person on the team, or unless they're seen as the most kind, the most humble, the most gifted. Some people thrive on praise that they receive from being exalted as the best. They confuse the praise of man with the approval of God. And those are not the same thing. Professionistic, uh, perfectionist parents <coughs> can be unnecessarily hard on their children. I confess this and now I'm talking about myself. <laughs> it probably wasn't a good idea. Um, professional parents can be unnecessarily hard on their children. I'm, I'm not hard on my children, I don't think so. <laughs> if I am, you can call me out. Um, from behavior and conduct to things like sports and assignments in school, you find yourself being overly critical, and we can tend to belittle them because they don't meet some standard that you created that's unrealistic anyway. Perfectionism can creep into the church too. I think all of us have uh, professionistic tendencies. <clears throat> we probably see it more here than anywhere else. We dress ourselves up spiritually and come to church and see our brothers and sisters in the faith, and we pretend that we're better than we actually are. We sing, all I have is Christ, but we keep up the facade of perfection. With our words, we say, Christ is my righteousness, but we still go out and on our way keeping up the appearance of righteousness. We confuse perfectionism with true spirit-produced progress in the faith. From a Christian perspective, this attitude, these tendencies of perfectionism that I think are probably displayed in all of us at different times um, are unhealthy and ungodly. This attitude is just another form of self-worship. It's actually a form of idolatry. In our own striving for excellence, we can't can't worship excellence. I think we should strive. Uh, Paul prays that we would be able to discern what is excellent, but we're not worshiping excellence in and of itself, Um, a man-centered, self-centered excellence. 
the, this mindset actually resembles uh, the hypocrites that Jesus addressed. In Matthew 6, 2, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet uh, before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What's the reward for the hypocrite who sounds the horn before they do something and are praised? What's their reward? End of second Exactly. This passing, fleeting praise. It's the praise of fickle men and not the approval of God. And in John 12, the scriptures talk about men who saw Jesus' signs and believed but would not confess it. And why? What was the reason? What was happening in their hearts? Well, they were worshiping what they loved. John 12, 43 says this, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from men, the praise that comes from men more than the praise that comes from God. <clears throat> I would say that this happens in all of our hearts at times. Um, in some seasons, it's more apparent. In other seasons, it's a quiet, um, sort of behind-the-curtain self-seeking that we all have to be mindful and aware of. We worship the praise, applause, and glory that comes from having the appearance of godliness at times while denying its power. The aim of Paul's prayer is different. It's the opposite of self-glorifying and idolatrous. It's God-glorifying, and it's aimed at the worship of God. D.A. Carson ends this section by saying that Love is essentially self-denying. It seeks God's interest, which is our fellow believers, good. God's interest is their good. And so Paul brings his prayer to the sharpest point. He prays that God himself might be glorified and praised. Um, I pray, he says, that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and gospel-informed discernment so that you can test and approve and choose what is excellent what is best until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which comes by virtue of union with Christ. And all of this I pray for the glory and praise of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to him, to him, be glory and dominion and power forever. Amen. When we pursue holiness and when we pray for each other that we would live righteously in the midst of an evil age and pursue it, the end is that our triune God will be glorified in his saints until that day when Christ returns and our fight with the flesh is over. We say Maranatha to that. And we do all of this so that, in the, or God accomplishes this through us, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And this is to the praise 
it says in Ephesians, to the praise of his glorious grace. So let's pray, um, and I'll close this class uh, by praying uh, the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 13. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for you, for one another, and for you as we do so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Amen. You are dismissed.